Welcome to the Modern Immortals Podcast. I'm Marco Lamb. And I'm Luke Terry. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the cutting edge of evolutionary practices as they apply to our modern lives. We draw our inspiration from the original biohackers, the Taoist Immortals, who dedicated their lives to manifesting the full potential of mind, body, and spirit. We interview people who inspire us with how they're living their lives and expanding the realm of what's possible in being a human. Come join us on the ride. This podcast is supported by our good friends over at Performance Tea. I've been involved with this project since the beginning. As a chief formulator of their products, my goal is to bring thousands of years of Chinese herbal wisdom to a daily adaptogenic tea that can support people in achieving their full potential. Performance Tea is helping many athletes, hardworking entrepreneurs, and everyday people in uncovering the leading edge of health, performance, and longevity. The teas taste great and come in a concentrated powder that easily mixes with water. These products are the most powerful combination of adaptogenic teas on the market, and we're getting feedback from people drinking the tea that they're achieving levels of athletic performance and cognitive superpowers that they find exceptional. Welcome back to The Modern Immortal. I'm here with Marco Lamb. And I'm here with Luke Terry. And uh, we just wanted to update you on our current thoughts on coronavirus and what's happening in the medical world and... An update we did our first uh, episode on coronavirus very early in the pandemic and we were saying this is going to probably be a bigger deal than most people uh, understood at the time and I think we were correct on that but now we're we're I think it's time for revisiting the subject what do you say Luke yeah I agree we've had quite a few months to look at the data and see patients clinically and work on projects relating to coronavirus so I think we have a new perspective that we can offer people about what's happening with the pandemic and with testing and with uh, the, the public health orders and related topics. And I think testing is a great place to start because I think that's a place that Asia was really strong in both testing and contact tracing right from the very beginning and was really able to sort of bottle the genie back in the in the bottle, so to speak, whereas the United States, that really didn't happen, and public health authorities really fumbled it. And so now it looks like, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, and it is everywhere. Yeah, it's a, you're, you're absolutely right on that, Marco, especially early on. Uh, I, I do think the testing landscape has changed. I saw a recent statistic that one in four Americans has been tested, at least on paper. And I think it's a little misleading because it means that there are some people that have been tested, for example, yourself, multiple times. And there are still a lot of people that have never been tested, but nonetheless, we've tested uh, somewhere around one in four Americans so far at this point. Testing has really ramped up over the last few months. Yeah, as a clinician, I think it, a responsible thing to do is you have access, particularly to PCR testing, just because they're considering that the gold standard of testing now. Mm -hmm. You know, get the swab up your nose. It's a little uncomfortable. I... I I liken it to having your teeth cleaned. It's unpleasant, but it's it's not it's not like going to hurt you that much. There's a lot of like erroneous, you know, fear and data out there that's saying like the testing is harmful in some ways, but you're literally just scraping some epithelial from your upper sinus cavity. It's unpleasant, but not harmful in any way. Well, this is true, and fortunately, uh, even even though that's an uncomfortable test, it's not terrible. Uh, there's a new kind of PCR available. I've learned about this through my work with Wellness for Humanity. Uh, there is a PCR test available now that works with saliva. So it's just spitting in a tube. Yeah, that's the antigen test. No, this is a PCR. 
Oh, it's a PCR test. It's a PCR test that's been optimized for the lower levels of virus found in the saliva. Uh, it, I guess uh, it all has to do with the cycle threshold. My understanding of it is, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of PCR. We talked about this last time, but it's probably worth revisiting what PCR actually is. Go for it. So PCR, it's a technically RT-PCR. It's reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction. So what's happening is a small amount of viral RNA is found on these swabs, as few as 80 to 100 individual particles of the virus or even fragments of the virus end up on the swab. And the PCR machine essentially just replicates that. And it does that over and over and over again until there's enough of that sequence of amino acids to accurately identify it. And so uh, in this case, in the RT-PCR, the cycle threshold is the number of times that the machine has to double the amount of material in order to reach an identifiable population. And so uh, it all based, it's based on the amount of material in the starting sample. In that little one millimeter of saliva or, or excuse me, one uh, milliliter of saliva or uh, a swab that's then diluted in about one milliliter of liquid. Yep. And so when someone has an active in infection, they may have millions of viral particles. So it doesn't take very long. It doesn't take very many cycles of doubling in order to get to a level where you can detect the the sequence of the virus that you're looking for. Yeah. And what's the? Do you know the accuracy of those tests? I understand them to be fairly highly accurate. Yeah, they're about 99.7 to 99.9 percent .9 accurate, and in some ways they're too sensitive because what's happening is on the tail end of an infection, someone will have viral particles, just fragments that their immune system has already broken apart. They'll be floating around in your body for weeks after the active infection. You're no longer contagious, but you can still detect those viral fragments for weeks after the infection has been cleared. Um, they're detectable very soon after someone's been infected, even if they're asymptomatic. And so the, it's interesting. The labs essentially are just the lab technicians are trained to give us a yes or no answer. Yeah. And essentially the, the number that's being used currently is 34 cycle thresholds. And so the machine runs till it has 34 cycle thresholds and at 34 cycle thresholds, you either get a yes or no answer. And that is a very high sensitivity test. Yeah. Do, do they give the data back? Like on my data, when I've taken the test through like route county health, they only give me a yes or no. But That's I'd correct. love to see like if I was a yes, I'd love to know how many cycles they ran before I was a yes. Yeah. I'd like to know relative viral load. Most labs are not giving that data out. Yeah. Uh, but that data is kept. It, it is, at least it's in the machine. It may not be recorded in your health record, but for research purposes, I've been, I've been lucky enough to be involved with Wellness for Humanity, and they've done three clinical trials now. They have an antigen test in clinical trials, so I've had a chance to discuss this with, with them. And it is possible when you have direct access to the machine, to the PCR machine, to look at total viral load. And there's some really interesting things to be learned there. So for example, when you're looking at a patient record, you can see in the, on the patient record if someone's asymptomatic or symptomatic, and, and often there's notes about how bad their symptoms were. And what we're finding is that there's no correlation between total viral load and someone's symptoms. So someone can be an, often a young, healthy person that has good exercise habits and a healthy lifestyle, and they could sustain a very high viral load and be asymptomatic or only have mild symptoms. And conversely, we can see you know, older people, people that have uh, you know, metabolic damage or disease or they have other pre-existing conditions, they can have really bad symptoms. They can really get wrecked from a relatively low viral load. And this sort of aligns with our actual first episode where 
we talked about the research coming out of China and how they were treating it herbally as a damp pathogen. Mm-hmm. And we can think of dampness like in Western terms as an imbalanced microbiome, you know, usually caused by underlying metabolic uh, dysfunction. Absolutely. And so this sort of lines up with our initial premise mm-hmm. that so like a small amount of virus, you know, we can, you can think of it like a small amount of mold in like a flooded basement is going to cause a lot of problems. But like a small amount of mold getting into a dry basement, you know, that has good airflow is not going to be that much of a problem. That's a great analogy. That's exactly what we're seeing here. We can think of that moisture level in the basement in this analogy as the underlying conditions in their body. And when someone has a lot of dampness, a lot of mucus and phlegm, and just metabolic junk, shall we say, they're at much greater risk. Yep. So that patient who wakes up in the morning with the thick coat of their tongue might be a drinker, might eat a lot of simple carbohydrates, uh, who wakes up already coughing phlegm even when they're not ill. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the person at risk. And absolutely. That, that, that's lining up with the clinical picture very clearly, too. Yep. Absolutely. You're seeing a lot of, like, sort of young kids who are, especially college kids, who are coming back with positive coronavirus uh, testing, but they're like fatigued for a day or two and not much symptomology beyond that. Absolutely. So Marco, you mentioned college kids. Uh, before the show started, we were talking a little bit about the epidemiology, epidemiology of the disease in our local community here in Boulder. And you had some interesting observations. I wonder if you'd go into that a little bit and and talk about the cases of coronavirus you've seen and just some of the informal sort of contact tracing that you've done just through conversation with people. You know, surprisingly enough, I've seen like the biggest outbreak among college-age kids. They're not so social isolating, not wearing masks. You're seeing fraternity parties up on the hills. The police are breaking up large gatherings where people are, are both drinking and in close proximity, which mm-hmm. is probably like the, like the virus's best chance of like getting a toehold but also the flip side of that is you're not seeing like really horrible symptomology with these young people who are getting coronavirus well that was my next question marco so in these in these college age folks that you're seeing are you seeing people that are really really sick are they having a ton of phlegm are they ended up you know on the edge of going to the er going to the er with bad symptoms you know i don't have a large enough sample of Mm -hmm. you know positive coronavirus cases Mm -hmm. because a lot of times if if you're sick, they're still not even, I think at this point they are testing you if you go in with coronavirus symptoms, but for a long time they weren't even testing you. They were just saying stay at home. Yeah. And so I feel like we missed out on some of the data because of that. Yeah. But I've, I've definitely seen some families that sort of the young person who's staying at home with their family is spreading it to older family members mm-hmm. and that's, that's problematic. I haven't seen any like very severe cases, but definitely cases where people have flu and then lingering fatigue. You know, one of the things that's coming out uh, in the literature that I haven't seen personally, but like the idea of the long haulers, the people who get coronavirus Mm -hmm. and are just sick forever. And I've seen like equivalent cases of that, like especially with like Lyme's patients. You know, you have some people who get Lyme's and it's just like a nasty flu-like bug for a week or two and they take a round of antibiotics and they're done. And then you see some people who have limes that are decades later still like dealing with chronic fatigue issues and all sorts of strange inflammation that bounces around the body. 
Absolutely. I think we're going to be dealing with the fallout from coronavirus for decades as clinicians. We will see people that have post-coronavirus syndrome. That will become a thing and there will be clinicians that specialize in treating it, just like we have clinicians like yourself and like myself that work on people with chronic Lyme disease or uh, Epstein-Barr or any of these common pathogens. Yeah, but we don't really have protocols in place to treat that yet. I mean, we can look at it from the uh, symptoms and the patterns of Chinese medicine. And in some ways, Chinese medicine has a hand up there right? mm-hmm. because these patterns of, are really laid out a lot. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, as far as I can tell, I haven't seen these cases clinically yet, a lot of them sort of line up with like almost like a chronic Lyme's illness. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the same, you know, high levels of fatigue, high levels of inflammation, and sort of multi-organ challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen any of the blood coagulation disorders that have been described in the literature and described by some clinicians? I, I, have not, I have not seen that yet. Yeah. I, 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 I have had people who've had like tingling of their feet and like sort of sort of strange symptoms that, mm-hmm. that would lead you to believe that you had something similar going on. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen any of these like, like purple or blue hands or feet or anything mm-hmm. like that. Really purple tongues or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also feel like probably those people aren't going in for acupuncture. They're probably the people going into the hospital on a ventilator. Yeah. They're probably not the people who are well enough to seek my services. Yeah, there's a selection bias, isn't there? People that are actually well enough to walk into an acupuncture clinic and seek treatment are not the same population of people that end up in the ER or in the ICU. I'd actually say the vast majority of people that I get are most likely have the flu Mm -hmm. and are really anxious and overwhelmed that they have the coronavirus and and maybe feeling guilty or ashamed that maybe they infected a lot of people because they weren't, you know, taking adequate precautions around spreading. So it's sort of like uh, the sort of anxiety and shame around like, oh, did I spread this to grandma, you know, Mm -hmm. and and then, you know, we get them tested and then we find out, oh, no, you just have the flu Or or we assume you have the flu. I've also seen some cases that for all extensive purposes looked exactly like Corona, you know, even with like sort of pneumonia symptoms, high fevers, you know, that I'm like, yeah, this person needs to isolate and talk to their primary care provider and be monitored. Mm -hmm. And then they get tested multiple times because even the MD is convinced they have Corona and they're negative. And I'm curious about that. Like, is the testing missing something? Or is it just a bad flu? Or is, is the virus actually mutating faster than the testing? You know, These are all possibilities, Marco, for sure. So if you think about that from a testing perspective, even if the virus is not mutating rapidly, uh, with a 99.7% accuracy rate, meaning uh, the ability to, te- to detect positives when they're positive, uh, that would mean a 0.3% false negative rate. That's still three people in a thousand. Yeah, but most of these cases where they have such strong symptoms, they test, Mm -hmm. and if it comes back negative, they're like, no, we must have done something wrong with the test. They test again, Mm -hmm. and sometimes even, they usually test twice. Mm -hmm. So like, I feel like the Western medical establishment, now that they have adequate testing, if they see people with these symptoms, and the first test comes back negative, and they're like pretty sure it's coronavirus anyway, they'll test a second time. Yeah, And I think the chances of like, that 0.3% missing twice, uh, like basically it being a test error, yeah. seems very low. You're, you're absolutely right there. So a couple of observations on that. One is 
it could be that the virus is mutating reasonably rapidly. Um, I'm fortunate to have a, actually, you know, a good friend of ours, we won't mention his name here, but we have a friend who's a PhD in, in uh, computational genetics. And, you know, he, he's been spending some time researching the literature on viral mutation rates. And from what we can tell, coronaviruses don't mutate that quickly. So it's unlikely that the tests are, are negative due to viral mutation. There are other types of viruses that do mutate much more quickly, but this isn't one of them. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. The, the testing, especially the antibody testing, is flexible enough in its um, positivity rate that it will actually detect other types of coronavirus. So yeah. when we give somebody an antibody test, especially the first antibody test to become positive, which is the IgM antibodies, have somewhere in the range of a 20 or 30% chance of becoming positive from other cold, coronaviruses. And cold viruses. Yes, correct. Actually, yeah. the common cold is a, a coronavirus. It's yeah. not COVID-19, but it's a type of coronavirus that's close enough. You know, and on a related topic, there's evidence that shows that 30 to 50% of people have the ability, that have, they have white blood cells that have the ability to recognize and fight off COVID-19, even in the ab absence of antibodies. Yeah, I read that research as well. Which is really fascinating, and so there's so many things at play here, and this is this is still. Even and I wonder more. what what their experience is like. I wonder if they're more like the young, healthy person who basically fights it off with a day or two of fatigue because their body already has that sort of white blood cell blueprint in a way. Yeah, that's that's what I suspect. So the the group out of Texas that I've been working with, the Wellness for Humanity, I've been working with them uh, since June or July, really formally since July, informally from before that, quite a, a couple of months. And, you know, talking to their operators, you know, they've tested at this point more than 7,000 people. And so their staff is day-to-day -day in contact with this group. And so the, the internal staff gets tested quite regularly, weekly in some cases. And there are some folks who, even when everyone around them is sick, they actually did have a sort of an internal coronavirus outbreak early on. And a number of people on staff got sick. There were some people that, that just never came down with symptoms and they never tested positive for antibodies. Mm -hmm. uh, they, even when they're in day-to-day -day contact with sick people, when they're in some cases they were assisting in uh, you know, giving care to the people who were ill. So what would the mechanism would be that basically the white blood cells basically take it out even before, before the body has a chance to build antibodies? Was that a correct Yes, yeah, absolutely. The, the memory T cells can recognize it and, and form an attack without ever having to form the antibodies. It's... The, the theories on this are still forming, and of course, we're a long ways from being able to say this with a lot of confidence, but it appears that the antibody approach or the antibody mechanism might actually be a secondary mechanism, and the memory T cell is the primary mechanism. And it's only when primary T cells fail that antibodies are developed and the, the body, uh, the beta lymphocytes then create antibodies and the killer T cells come in based on the antibody activity. Uh, the, the immune system is really still kind of a black box. We still don't completely understand all of these interactions. And this, this is, but this is a certain breath of fresh air that perhaps we have more immunity in our herd than we imagined. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the data out of Sweden tends to confirm that because Sweden never locked down. They do use masks in Sweden, but not quite as much as we do here. Uh, they've done a fair bit of testing and they did see a small bump in cases but there uh, recently but their their bump in cases was actually smaller than the bump in cases we're seeing in America with the lockdowns and their case positivity rate was never very high 
And so it appears that they may be reaching herd immunity with a far lower number of positive cases than we would have imagined. That's fascinating. And, and you, that data has been very poli- politicized on both sides. It sure has. You know, on one hand, like I've seen like alarmist articles like Sweden basically fucked up. Mm-hmm. You know, like Sweden chose to like not lock down and now they're in big trouble. Yep. I've definitely seen those articles several times. And then I've seen other uh, articles saying that, you know, Sweden chose the correct path. Yeah, you know, and, but, and is, I haven't really seen the the actual data, and I wonder what the tracking is. And the the, the problem right now, the most horrible thing I think that came out of this is that science got really. I mean, science has always been a little bit dirty in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, who's the power and money behind the science, but I feel like this is a whole new level of uh, lack of transparency in the scientific community yeah. and in the media about reporting on the scientific community. Yeah, there are a lot of problems, Marco, for sure. There are a lot of issues, starting with, in the beginning, um, the the CDC came out with a report that said, don't wear masks, and that was essentially just an effort to conserve PPE for healthcare practitioners, and, and then they came out later and said, oh wait, sorry, we made a mistake. Um, hydroxychloroquine, kind of another similar story. There was a large-scale clinical trial that was faked, entirely faked with, with false data that was published and then retracted in the medical literature, uh, there's just all everywhere you look. There's trouble. There are challenges. There are there's uh, fakery and shenanigans going on in the medical literature. And those are like two big bookmarks for me. One is just sort of people's lack of trust, mm-hmm. you know. And to a certain extent, there's this like sort of like let's isolate, mm-hmm. which I actually think is a reasonable strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the other one that I think is the sort of uh, dark side of all of this is that lack of trust creates, you know, paranoia mm-hmm. and creates all these crazy, ridiculous theories out there. Mm-hmm. And also, I think we're, we're headed into a mental health crisis. I think we're already in one. Yeah. I think the data on suicides and drug and alcohol addictions and overdoses is very clear. They've all spiked. And in a lot of cases, those deaths are actually much greater than the deaths from the virus counts in, in many places in the United States. Yeah, and that's sort of heartbreaking. Yeah. Just because the United States has really poor mental health services in many well, levels. Mm-hmm. And many of the mental health service providers right now are probably even shut down or yeah. like going to telemedicine. Yeah, I know in, in our clinic at the Mandala Center, we have quite a few mental health providers that practice at Mandala Clinic. And uh, it seems like, would you say, probably more than half have gone to telemedicine and remained that way? Yeah, more than half have gone to telemedicine and remained that way, now, partially because of their age cohort. Some of them are older. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of them are seeing at a real reduced level. Mm-hmm. And some of them, their patients just don't want to come in because they're still sort of COVID cautious. Yeah. So I think... You know, there's a there's an economic impact on the sort of uh, uh, healthcare healthcare market as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been following the oncology area for a bit. Uh, I had a couple clients that are oncology patients, and uh, it's interesting. The oncology field has seen quite a, a a rate increase in oncology related deaths, and the the working theory right now is that oncology patients are actually avoiding care because of coronavirus. They're not going in for their oncology treatments. They're not going in there for their uh, palliative care, for their supportive care, for their acupuncture and their nutritional visits. They were essentially just avoiding 
all outside world contact because of the virus. And yeah. now we see a, a real and very shocking increase in oncology deaths over the last three or four months. And there's also sort of a, a fair caution there because while you're on chemotherapeutic agents, like your immune system is, you know, blown out. Absolutely. So like you're actually highly susceptible. Yeah. And you know you're highly susceptible. So there's some reasonable caution there, but there's also the, um, there's some sort of the, the disease is worse than the cure. In this case, the cure is worse than the disease. Somewhere, yeah. Some, some oxymoronic uh, challenge there of like, do I go in with the weakened immune system and pick up a bug in the hospital that kills me, or do yeah. I skip chemo and have you know the lack of chemo? Yeah. You know, have the cancer take me out. Well, in some ways, these challenges have have these choices. This dichotomy has always been present for oncology patients. It's just now it's so much more heightened. In fact, if there is a silver lining to COVID, and I do believe that there'll be numerous silver linings in the way that the coronavirus crisis is realigning society, one of the silver linings is that medicine is under a much higher level of scrutiny and people are paying much more attention to what's happening with Western medicine, with their doctors, with vaccines, with uh, just the risk of catching something going into the doctor's office. But we've known for years that hospitals are actually one of the most likely places to catch these superbugs, like uh, MRSA, yep. the uh, multiple drug-resistant staph infections. They're, it almost exclusively comes from hospitals or, ironically, uh, jujitsu dojos, <laughs> because you got a bunch of sweaty wrestlers running, rolling around on the yep. mat. Yeah, and getting skin abrasions. And... Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So. I think going forward, there's a lot more attention being paid to health and medicine and to wellness. People are paying attention to their health. Uh, I talk about this a lot with my patients and friends. Is that uh, I have known some folks that before coronavirus really lived their lives on uh, over-the-counter stimulants like coffee and nicotine and ate a lot of fast food and didn't exercise. And because of coronavirus, I'm now starting to see lifestyle shifts in people. They're actually starting to... to uh, work on eating healthy. They're trying to learn about what that means. They're you know, getting outside for walks and just trying to live a healthier life because they know their life is at risk if they don't do something to address their chronic health issues. And as we were discussing before the podcast, only about 12% of Americans are truly metabolically healthy. And so 88% of the American population has some form of derangement or defect, shall we say, in the way that their body processes nutrients and um, maintains a normal physiological functioning yeah i was talking with luke uh prior to we started recording about just the new wearable tech mm -hmm. you know they have glucose meters that you can stick on a patch onto your arm that lasts there for 14 days just a little prick in your skin and it syncs up with your smartphone and then you can actually real time see the level of blood sugar and how it fluctuates with what you're eating and what you're doing. And I think that it could be one of the most powerful tools for people to understand their metabolic fitness. And primarily it was designed for diabetic patients, you know, because for them, blood sugar regulation is a life or death issue. But I think for your average American, you could really use it as a wellness monitor yeah. and they're cheap. They're like 60 bucks. So like you could basically understand what's going on with your metabolism for a really like low investment. 
Yeah, that's really interesting, Marco. And when we talk about diabetics, I think it's really important to understand the progression of the disease. And most people don't understand that diabetes doesn't develop overnight. It's typically years of neglect, years of eating the wrong foods and not getting enough exercise and some sleep derangements. You know, we know that uh, sleep disorders... Well, there's multiple really... times of di- There's mul- You have diabetes type 1, type yeah. 2. You have juvenile onset and, you know, but... Let's, let's look at type 2 diabetes because it's the most common. I yep. think it's something around 60 or 70%. I can look that up, but it's certainly the most common form of diabetes is type 2 diabetes. And that's simply a lack of sensitivity to insulin because insulin has been overexpressed for a long period of time. This is completely a lifestyle disease. And by the time somebody gets to a formal diagnosis of diabetes, they've been in a pre-diabetic state for decades. And, and sadly, this is happening to children now. We're having younger and younger people be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes because kids live on fast food and soda pop, which is pure yeah. fructose, which is the, if you wanted to create a recipe to induce type 2 diabetes in human beings, the optimal recipe would be processed food with a lot of industrial seed oils and a lot of fructose from processed beverages. Yeah, a little Kraft mac and cheese yeah. followed by like a juicy juice box. Yeah, and- Mountain Dew, some Dr. Pepper, yep. you know, a couple Red Bulls. You know, this is this is what kids are doing to themselves. And so now we're seeing teenagers and, and kids in their 20s ending up with type 2 diabetes. And uh, it, that is a later stage metabolic derangement. The, the real metabolic derangement, the early stages of it, look like uh, the inability to skip a meal. You know, we've been taught, I think, for years in American society that, oh, you need, you know, it's not healthy to skip a meal. Don't, don't skip meals. That's not good for you. But in reality, if you think about our ancient ancestors, they didn't have a stable food supply. They had to go sometimes days, maybe even weeks without food. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go weeks without food, but certainly, you know, you and I both practice intermittent fasting, and we know that can be very beneficial because you're giving the body a longer period of time each day for those insulin receptors to reset, for the, that digestive machinery and the, the metabolic machinery in the liver to rest and rejuvenate. If someone is in a pre-diabetic state, they'll be very uncomfortable when they skip a meal. Yeah, they get the hangry. They get hangry, they'll get cranky, they'll get sleepy, tired, shaky. There are a lot of symptoms, and they're all generally in the range of discomfort. And it takes yep. a little bit of, let's say, willpower to yep. move through those states of discomfort and allow the body to regulate its own blood sugar by, by releasing blood sugar stored in fat or, or stored in the liver yep. to regulate. And clinically, it's actually more complex because there's this interesting relationship to stress and blood sugar. And so, like, you know, really stressed out people basically dysregulate their blood sugar. Ah, yeah, that's a great point. So... A lot of folks don't know that the stress hormone cortisol, it's actually one of several stress hormones, but it's the major hormone of stress. Cortisol has an insulin-like activity, or we could say that cortisol is pro-insulin. And so in this really interesting way, when people are stressed out, it's putting their body into this sort of survival mode that mimics the fact that they just ate. So certainly uh, managing stress is an important part of dealing with any chronic disorder, including diabetes. Yeah. And I want to say that, you know, from 20 years of clinical practice, I see people with metabolic disorder and treat them with Chinese medicine, acupuncture and diet. And it's it's reversible. People, even type two diabetes, I've seen people get off their medications. Sometimes it takes several years, but Mm -hmm. it 
people can reverse these long-term metabolic disorders. Absolutely. And for people who are like less further down that path, the quicker they, their recovery is not, not as deep, you know? That's true. And for folks who can shift their diet relatively quickly and without a lot of discomfort, uh, both emotionally and physically, uh, in my experience, they tend to do a little better. But, you know, it's important to realize that as human beings, we're, we're deeply emotional creatures. And people form deep emotional attachments to food. And there's a reason why people call macaroni and cheese a comfort food because it is. It reminds people of their childhood. And so when people feel emotionally stressed, it's a natural mechanism to reach out for that mac and cheese or the pizza or whatever it is that you ate when you were a kid when you wanted to feel better. And while it's normal and natural, it isn't necessarily healthy. And in order to make these shifts, we have to really be able to, to change the conversation and find ways of meeting those emotional needs. Food is deeply emotional. We have to be able to meet those sort of emotional nutrients, if you will, by making food uh, palatable and interesting. So, you know, there, there is a way to, to do that. There's a way to rewire our emotional attachments for, for food. What's next? Ah, good question. So um, getting back to testing, I think this is an interesting topic. We can go into a little deeper. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to be involved in the testing industry. There's some interesting tests on, on the horizon. Uh, really quickly, so the antigen test is an interesting one because... And this it, is the rapid antigen test. Yeah, the rapid antigen test. So just to back up, the antibody test is a finger prick blood test, and you can do yep. that on site. It takes eight minutes to get the result. And it's IgG and IgM. IgG and IgM. And that prices of those tests have come way down. They sure have. Absolutely. And uh, that's great. But the one problem with the antibody test is there's a four or five day lag from the time someone is infected to the time when their body will produce enough IgM antibodies to test positive. Yep. So there's a little window of uncertainty in there. And that in that window of uncertainty, we need to use the PCR test. The PCR test is great, but the problem is you have to send it out. And it takes a minimum of 24 hours. In a lot of cases, you know, if you go to an emergency room or a, an urgent care center in Colorado, it's going to take three to five days, maybe longer, to get your PCR yep. results. So it's kind of pointless at that yeah, point. Yeah, I remember the town of Telluride basically did a PCR test on everybody in the town as like a quick response to try to sort of, you know, save their town's health. But then it was like... They didn't get their results back for like three weeks and it was yeah. like too late at that point. <laughs> right, because they had to test you know, several thousand people. And, and, you know, it's a good point. In the testing industry, as a friend of mine likes to say, uh, PCR technicians don't just grow on trees. It's a very technical job. Yep. And the sample preparation is very, very important. The sample has to be prepared very meticulously and the same, exact same each time. And if that process isn't done correctly, then you get an error. The same is true on the, the sample uh, the sample acquisition end of it, when the actual throat swab or nasal swab is taken, that process has to be done correctly to get a good result. And so the research shows that on the throat swab PCRs, they're 99.7% accurate in a laboratory academic environment. But in com common clinical practice, there are errors with the way that's delivered. They don't take a deep enough swab. They don't rub it around inside the nose or the throat quite long enough. And so under common conditions, the PCR accuracy goes down to about 70%. Wow. And so, so there's a big drop of accuracy just because of the technician. That's right. And so the new breed of PCR test that's just coming out, so Wellness for Humanity has one of these that will be rolling out here shortly, 
it's a saliva test. So it's a PCR test that's been optimized to not need that deep nose swab or that deep throat swab and you just spit in the tube and send that to the lab. So the next stage is going to be the antigen test. So the antigen test. What's the turnaround time on the spit in the tube? It's the same. It's 24 to 48 hours. Okay. Yeah. So the PCR test, it doesn't matter if it's how the sample was acquired. The, the process, once it gets to the lab, the process is the same. Similar. Yeah. So um, the antigen test, it looks for proteins that are produced in the body really quickly after infection. So it has the same early detection ability as the antibody test but it has the advantage of being a point of contact test, meaning it's just like the antibody test in that it's at the point of contact. You just take a, a, a saliva sample and uh, actually it might be blood. I need to double check on that. We haven't actually received the test kits yet, uh, but nonetheless, it's about a 10 minute process to get your results. Yep. And so it has a, a much better early detection rate than the antibody test. And you don't have to wait for your body to produce the antibodies to detect the antigen. Correct. Yeah, the antigen test is uh, is positive really, really quickly right after infection, even in asymptomatic cases. So that might really, a combination of antigen testing, uh, you might be able to sort of create a wall around a certain community by testing everybody and then following up on the positives with PCR and then like high quality uh, tracing. Yeah, absolutely. And co contact tracing is a big deal. You know, there are some privacy concerns around that. And, and I understand where people's privacy concerns are coming from. And I think we need to do things to make sure that people's privacy concerns are met. But at the same time, it's the best way to really stop the spread because you can identify people that are asymptomatic. And that's the big thing, as you mentioned earlier. You know, in, in your population, the patients you see at the Medalla Clinic, you know, there are a lot of folks that are in their you know, 40s or 50s that have college-age kids and they're getting the coronavirus from their college-age kids who are home from college or taking online classes from college, but they're also, you know, going out to parties on the hill and uh, doing events that are not socially distanced. And so when a, when a healthy college student acquires the virus, they may not have any symptoms at all. And they may actually, what our, what our data shows is that they may carry a fairly significant viral load with no symptoms. Yeah. But then they're, they're coming home to mom yeah. and dad that are... Or they're you know, like the typhoid Mary, like maybe he's the guy delivering pizzas and seeing like <laughs> 150 people on a weekend. Yeah, absolutely. The Uber driver. The Uber driver. Somebody who sees a lot of people... In an know, enclosed space. Right. Absolutely. So here in Boulder, you know, we have some big concerns because uh, currently we have outdoor dining, which is wonderful. Pearl Street Mall and West Pearl is amazing. You can go out and sit out on the patio and at one of the many amazing restaurants in Boulder, but uh, outdoor dining is set to end in, I want to say middle of October because yep. it'll be too cold after that. So we need to- I, I wonder about that. I actually wonder if restaurants will adapt and just put propane heaters out there. Yeah, so we had a conversation. I'm, I mean, I'm talking with folks in downtown Boulder now involved with this testing project. Uh, there's a group called The Local, which organizes a lot of the downtown Boulder events. It's a nonprofit that is part of the- the uh, Boulder Chamber of Commerce and the Boulder um, uh, uh, Business Alliance. I might be getting some of those details wrong, but it is a, a nonprofit that's organized. They're the folks that are putting up the signs on Pearl Street Mall and, and uh, setting up a lot of these zones and doing a lot of the local promotions. Um, they have set a date for when they believe outdoor dining will end, but I don't believe it's a hard stop. It's just their best available guess. Yeah, yeah, weather dependent, for sure. But nonetheless, I don't see people sitting outside 
on Pearl Street in December when it's the possibility of having a huge snow dump and it's sure. you know, 10 degrees at, at night. So we need to figure out some kind of testing protocol to, so that we can identify these young, healthy super spreaders yep. and keep them home without shutting down the business. Yep. And it seems, it seems like that testing is evolving more rapidly than uh, vaccines are. Though there's, there's a sort of a, sort of a huge press to get an active vaccine distributed to the populace. I feel incredibly cautious around that one. I think the idea of rush development of vaccines just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Absolutely. So we addressed the vaccine a bit in our first episode, and we also had a, an episode completely dedicated to vaccines with uh, one of our friends, uh, chiropractor, uh, Dr. Um, what's the doc's name? I'm spacing it right now, too. <laughs> uh, it'll come back to me. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, we did a, a vaccine special, and we did talk about the vaccines in our first coronavirus He's a episode. Naturopath, I think. Uh, naturopath, is an acupuncturist. I think both. Yeah, yeah, and a teacher, a yeah, longtime teacher. teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've spent quite a bit of time looking at the vaccines, and you know, studying the the research coming out on the coronavirus vaccines, and I know you have as well. Yeah. What are your thoughts? What if well, on the things you've read recently, and what? Well, uh, I know they were fast tracking the vaccine, and I think. AstraZeneca was like saying they were close and they then they just totally withdraw the vaccine after getting some really uh, uh, strong reactions to the vaccine. Yeah. Sort of said, no, we need to go back to sort of not square one, but maybe square two. But when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. So the the, uh, AstraZeneca trial was stopped, as you said, because of adverse effects. And I, I went through and read some of the reports from the AstraZeneca trial. And a lot of the symptoms that patients were having were neurological. In fact, they had one case of transverse myelitis, which is essentially a form of paralysis that can become permanent. It can be transverse myelitis. It's essentially inflammation in the spinal cord. And the combination of that, like even in the best case scenario, mm-hmm. right, that you have a vaccine that really works, that has like really limited side effects and no super dangerous side effects, say down to 0.0001%, like... At this point, like the public trust has been broken from say no one's trusting the CDC anymore. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, the CDC. Even if you have like say fifty percent of the population vaccinated and the other fifty percent doesn't vaccinated, it's sort of like a Waldorf kindergarten with hippie parents. You know? <laughs> it's like it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily do the do the work that we want it to do. Well, yes and no. Actually, we don't know that yet. You might be right, but it's also possible going back to that T cell, the memory T cell immunity we talked about earlier. Let's say, let's say, even if just thirty-five percent of Americans become vaccinated, and another thirty-five percent of Americans have memory T cell immunity, in theory, that would create herd immunity based on that seventy percent threshold. That is sort of more or less accepted in the epidemiology community. Yeah. A little arbitrary, but then when you combine that with the R-aught dropping because people are isolating and wearing masks and the like highest risk populations are just sort of super isolated, Yeah. then then you could sort of knock the virus back quite a bit. Yeah. I, think I think we're going to have outbreaks of this virus in places. It's going to be sort of like uh, cruise ship borne illnesses. Yeah, you like know? the norovirus. The norovirus. Right? You're going to have like norovirus outbreaks. You're going to have coronavirus outbreaks on like cruise ships mm-hmm. and like 
prisons and college dormitories, college dormitories, yeah. and you know, and eventually they'll become like healthier public policy. Like, how do we deal with this? Yeah, absolutely. And this absolutely. might this might go on for years. I, I anticipate that it will. Yeah, I don't think that we. I don't think that we've seen the last of it. So some interesting things is that uh, we're seeing larger spikes now in the United States than Sweden's even seeing, despite they despite the lockdown. And so, what that suggests is that by creating strict lockdowns and doing lots of social distancing, all we really did was push out all of the infections. And so, under this model, the same people who are going to get infected under normal conditions will get infected anyway. It'll just happen later. Yeah. Well, but it, that was that was understood by the epidemiologists from the beginning. The idea was to flatten the curve. That's so true. So that everybody lands in the hospital at once. Right. And we've definitely accomplished that. So in most places, we've not seen hospital overloads. And in a, in a lot of ways, we, we are probably past the point where lockdowns make sense, at least in this current moment in the middle of September. Yep. But as the flu season gets closer it's very likely we're going to see some more spikes, especially because people have been socially distancing. So people have and not people had chance. And people staying outside and socially yeah. distancing, yeah. distancing and like avoiding large gatherings. Exactly. And so, so that's great, but it doesn't necessarily prevent the illness. It just pushes it out. It yeah. just delays it. But then they like put schools back in session, colleges back in session. They see this huge spike mm-hmm. and then they close back down again. Yeah. So one point on the spikes is interesting. I've been following the university of Colorado very closely because it's here in our backyard. It's our home university here in Boulder, Colorado. And they just had a spike. And they just had a spike, but their spike is interesting. And so, and what we describe as spikes are interesting. And what we describe as cases are very interesting. And and I'm all about language. I love words. And I think it's important to use them precisely. And so when we go on the CDC website and look at what they define as a case, what the CDC describes as a case is a positive test result with symptoms. Yeah. Under that strict definition, what we're seeing here at the University of Colorado isn't truly a spike in cases. It's a spike in positive tests. Yes. And so... So these are the college students we talked about earlier yeah. going to the keg party, coming right. out with the symptoms, being fatigued for a couple of days, getting a test. Mm-hmm. And but not having much more symptomology. Right, absolutely. So so it, our actual case numbers under the strictest definition, we don't really know because they're not being reported. Yep. But by all accounts, not all of the people that are receiving a positive test result, especially when they're college students or young, healthy people, most of them are not having symptoms. Or if they are, they're very mild symptoms. Yep. So, you know, this is a delicate balance. I mean, we need to do things to keep the economy running and to actually try to get it back on track where it was before. There are many people still out of work. Uh, there are many people that are, you know, in an, an economically very dangerous positions, which is, yeah. as we said earlier, it's bad for alcoholism, drug addiction, depression, anxiety. All of these things are spir- skyrocketing right now. And we still need to do things to protect the vulnerable folks who are in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, the immunocompromised, you know, people with chronic diseases, people who are immunosuppressed because of chemotherapy. You know, we need to find a, a balance between all of these concerns, and it's certainly not easy. Yeah, and I think on the economic level, we're seeing actually a split. There's a certain percentage of the population who are doing great under this. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a tech worker now, you can work remotely from anywhere, mm-hmm. and you know, whatever like tech work you're doing is benefiting the world and creating a market. Work for Amazon or Zoom, like yeah. you're doing very well. Mm-hmm. But if you're a small street businessman 
running a bookstore, you're not doing well. If you're yeah. a server at a restaurant, you're not doing well. So there's, there's this, there's a, if you're one of the haves, mm -hmm. you know, who can really afford to sort of isolate and work remotely, you're doing amazing. Yeah. If you're one of the have-nots, you're, you're in more trouble than ever. This is true, Marco. You, you hit the nail on the head. You know, we've seen the net worth of Amazon become almost double. Even though Amazon has doubled and Facebook and a lot of these other tech companies, their value is, is close to or more than double where it was last year at this time. We're seeing huge, huge declines in small businesses. Something like 40% of American small businesses are closed and may not reopen. Uh, there's a, a really interesting uh, gentleman I follow on Twitter. His name is Dan Price, I believe, and he runs a payment processor for small, small businesses, and he's reported something like a 55% decline in revenues in the small businesses that his payment processor supports. So, I mean, we're just seeing, in some ways, an economic catastrophe that we don't really fully understand yet because it's still unfolding, happening in small businesses in America. And you can actually think of the, the small businesses as the economic immune system. Businesses really invest back into the community in a way that the large multinational conglomerates do not. And so the dollars spent in the local community get recirculated a lot more by the local businesses than they do in terms of, say, Amazon, where the money leaves the community but never actually comes back. Whereas the person who owns the local bookstore is paying local employees, paying local taxes, and those local employees are going out to lunch at local restaurants. And so the, each dollar spent in the local community recirculates multiple times and creates a stronger economic resilience where the sort of Amazons of the world do not do that for us. Yeah, and I so completely we, agree. Yeah, we see a, we're going to see a long-term sort of... Uh, economic malaise, I think, from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Small businesses, to me, create a sense of dignity that people don't have when they're working for a large multinational corporation. There's a sense of pride that people have when they're creating something with their own blood and sweat and tears that they actually own that doesn't happen. Even if they have stock options, even if they have the, you know, the, the, the things, the, the options that vest over time because they work at Amazon or whatever, it's not the same as when you build your own business and you have something, a brick and mortar business that sustains you and your family. There's something about that that just can't be replaced. And so it's a real tragedy that we need to do all we can to address and help small businesses in this country. Yeah, and it's really the fabric of America in a way. It really and we, is. And we see the small towns when, you know, the big box store shuts down Main Street in town and all the revenues go just slightly out of the city center mm -hmm. to like five miles outside of town to the Walmart or something. Yeah. And then you have a boarded up downtown. Yep. And like, that's, that's heartbreaking. It sure is. And it, it, sure it is. changes the very character of the community. It does. Yeah. We're relatively insulated here in Boulder because it's, it has a healthy economy. It has a relatively high level of wealth or really a very high level of wealth relative to a lot of places in America. But I think a lot of Main Street communities in America are not so lucky you know, the small towns that don't have the economic vibrancy that Boulder has are really suffering. Yeah, for sure. And so, like, we see this pandemic hitting people in all the places that count. It's hitting them in their community gathering place. It's hitting them in their economics. 
It's hitting them in their ability to see their loved ones, especially their elders. And, uh, you know, I sort of have a prayer going out to everyone out there to just, you know, hang tight and to take care of the ones you love, take care of your finances as best you can, plant a garden, plant some medicinal herbs, and, you know, the world is going to get better. There is hope on the horizon. Absolutely, Marco, and I think that's a great way to end the podcast. You know, I think there are, there is a lot of beauty in the world, and I think there are many silver linings to this. That in that when people work from home, they're spending less time commuting. Yep, spending more time with their families, more engaged in their kids' education. As hard as that may be, and mental health challenging as that may be, but there's there seems to me, at least in my personal felt experience, a reconnection of family, like. I'm Zooming with my family multiple times a week, which I never did that before. But my parents and grandparents are isolated, so like, they need to be reached out to. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of that going on. So I think as we move forward, we can really recreate the best of what we had before with the best of what this new reality offers us. Yeah, and to go back to our original podcast, you know, the, the Chinese character for crisis holds danger and opportunity yes. as part of the character. And I, I think we're still in that place where there's still a lot of danger and a lot of opportunity. That's right. So that character, when you break it down, it's, a, it's the pictogram for a sheltering cliff and a stinging insect. So it's a, a, a cliff overhead that shelters you from the rain, but there's this annoying wasp that's buzzing around that could sting you in the butt. Yeah. It's a really interesting um, image to hold in your head as we contemplate moving forward and all the things that we're doing. Yeah, and I think one of these sheltering cliffs for us, one of these um, places that we can connect with our clients and with our patients is that this could be the best time to really work on your health. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're seeing that. You know, I'm seeing people that are more interested than ever, people that I never thought would be interested, more in my personal circles, you know, family, friends, and things like that. People that I never thought would be interested in really taking a deep dive into what really creates a vibrant health and well-being. And so I'm really pleasantly surprised and really excited about those developments moving forward. Well, everybody stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to The Modern World. Thank you for listening to the Modern Immortals Podcast, brought to you by the Mandala Integrative Medical Clinic and by Performance Team.